It's a bird. It's a plane. It's rising. But that's the new show we host. Hello, Brianna. Hello, Robbie. What I was supposed to read was even sillier, it's, so I just said true. something off the top of my head. It should never change. I'm delighted. <laughs> All right. Well, what is going on on our show today? Let's find out, shall we? Well, uh, first off the bat, yesterday Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky made an impassioned plea before the United Nations General Assembly. Let's check in. Evil cannot be trusted. Ask Prigozhin if one bets on Putin's promises. Please hear me. Let unity decide everything openly. While Russia is pushing the world to the final war, Ukraine is doing everything to ensure that after Russian aggression, no one in the world will dare to attack any nation. Weaponization must be restrained. War crimes must be punished. Deported people must come back home and the occupier must return to their own land. We must be united to make it and we'll do it. Slava Ukraini. Now, Zelensky is set to head to Capitol Hill tomorrow in a visit coordinated with the Biden administration to encourage Congress to approve the White House's supplemental request for $24 billion more for Ukraine. However, the embattled leader may not receive as warm a welcome as he expects. Here's Florida Representative Byron Donalds from the Hill yesterday. Uh, the first thing I'll tell you is there's no money in the house right now for Ukraine. It's not, it's not there. Um, you so, mean there's no support for money? No. And to be blunt, we're running a $2 trillion deficit. Any money we give to Ukraine, we're borrowing from our future. That's the facts. Those are the truth. Anybody, you feel how you want to feel about it. I'm here to tell you what's right and what's real. Uh, I mean, look, it's not a good time for him to be here, quite frankly. Um, that's just the reality. And the third piece is what's happened with Ukraine is, frankly, the fault of leadership of Joe Biden. Let's be very clear of that. So do not, don't put that on the backs of the American people now. If we had a commander in chief who knew how to lead as opposed to take naps, then we would be in a much better situation when it comes to Ukraine and global security for that matter. Meanwhile, Speaker of the House Kevin McCarthy said he wants to question Zelensky and secure accountability for American taxpayers. Is Zelensky elected to Congress? Is he our president? I don't think I have to commit anything. I have questions for him. Where's the accountability on the money we already spent? What is the plan for victory? I think that's what the American public wants to know. Look, what Russia has done invade is wrong. It's an atrocity. And we want to make sure that ends. I also have always said from the beginning, no matter what the issue is, I want accountability for whatever the hardworking taxpayers spend their money on, and I want, on, and I want a plan for victory. Oof. So, you know, it, it does seem like these conservatives in the House are reflecting a strong and growing sentiment among the American people that the amount of money that's going out the door to Ukraine seems to be in stark conflict with the limited spending here for the American people. Now, I have to point out that those same House Republicans tend to vote down domestic spending as well. They seem to want to bring the deficit down entirely, even though they will they will frame it as we could be spending that money here. Still, I do think that they are right about the lack of accountability um, uh, with respect to spending in Ukraine and the hypocrisy yeah. of Democrats who will be very happy to aggressively push for these kinds of things, never have any hold up in Congress for funding these kinds of things, but seem to throw their hands up in the air as to why, when it comes to questions about why they have betrayed so many of their promises to the Democratic voters who put them in office hoping for domestic 
expanding in the first instance. Right. Byron Donalds is uh, is considered an extremist by the mainstream media and the establishment. Kevin McCarthy is you know beholden to MAGA if he's not MAGA himself. Listen to them. Those were completely reasonable statements, yeah. weren't they? That was. That was, we need basic accountability. We don't owe Zelensky anything at this point. We've been incredibly generous with our American taxpayer dollars. Those, those are questions, the, the questions they're raising there are questions that they don't even need to be partisan questions. Democrats can and should be raising them. It, it's not, it's, what is this money going to be spent for? What's the plan to wind this war down? We don't, we're not, we don't need to automatically give Zelensky everything he asked for. He is not the president of the United States. What is the plan? These are so, such basic questions that American voters, American taxpayers deserve answers to. It's astounding that it's only coming from the lips of Byron Donalds and Kevin McCarthy. Where are the yeah. Democrats on I this? I mean, well, there are, there are some voices. We have seen people like Ro Khanna pretty, um, consistently on this. He was one of the few that pushed back against the pushback yeah. of the letter that came out last summer where some progressives were trying to say, hey, can you at least try to be thinking about negotiating an end to this war? Um, and there have been some anti-war voices. But I, I agree that in terms of a united front coming from a party itself, the Republicans are doing much better, a much better job of framing this as their issue. I, I wanted to ask you what you thought about uh, Zelensky's use of the word final war as he was making his plea to the UN. You know, it, it, does that is that persuasive? Does it seem hyperbolic? Um, does it seem almost like uh, exploiting people's legitimate fear of World War III to get money? But the irony seems to be that by pursuing this proxy war, we are inching closer to the doomsday clock, having both hands on zero. Yeah, let's remember what this is actually a conflict over. It's a conflict over whether the eastern parts of Ukraine should be part of Ukraine or part of Russia or have some kind of self-determination, given that it's, it's a messy situation because some of the people there want to remain part of Ukraine, and it is part of Ukraine, but also some of the people there are Russian-speaking and feel more affection for Russia and feel yeah. more part of Russia, and it's, you know, changed hands a number of times. Um, it, it doesn't seem very, you know, liberal, Western, pro-democracy to me to say that a country's borders can never change, or that there's no right to some sort of separation and self-determination. Obviously, like, secession has a very ugly history, specifically in the American context, but e even in the context of the Civil War, right? West Virginia pulled away from Virginia because they wanted to support, because they felt more in line with what the Union's position was, and we were, and we allowed that. Our Constitution allows for that, actually, for, for states that are in open rebellion to have, to, to, to split in that way. That's about the only way you can split a state. So. I don't, I don't think it makes sense to advance the argument that, th that this is a, an affront to like liberal democracy, that this yeah. part of this country would, would go a different way. So are we going to fight World War III over that? Zelensky wants to make it sound like it's a conflict over the existence of Ukraine, that Russia right. is trying to sub con conquer and subjugate all of Ukraine. What Russia is doing is wrong, because the military option is never the right option, and they launched—this was, was an invasion that they started, so I'm not at all detracting from Putin's moral responsibility here. but. We have no reason to think that conquest of the entire country, that, you know, that Kyiv becoming part of Russia is, is what's on the agenda. Yeah, absolutely. I, I'm curious, there's also this interesting media angle where it does seem like the mainstream media has been increasingly um, critical 
of the pro-Ukrainian lens that has been, um, you know, endemic to it for the, the, the majority of this war. There was an article about the um, the market uh, bombing that killed 15 people a little while ago. Initially, the New York Times reported, Ukrainian sources reported, that it had been a Russian bomb. And it the timing of that particular incident in the reporting seemed to be useful to those who would be trying to get more financial support from the United States, um, showing uh, an escalation on the part of Russia, killing civilians, obviously a horrible crime. Now, subsequently, The New York Times wanted to send people in to investigate the actual bombing to see if it was, in fact, uh, of Russian in origin. They were barred from doing so by Ukrainian officials. The New York Times managed to conduct their own investigation anyway. And earlier this week published a follow-up story that was much less prominently featured, but nonetheless in The New York Times, saying that they had evidence that it was actually Ukrainian bomb that accidentally bombed its own marketplace. Now, in response, Ukrainian—the Ukrainian media are saying, absolutely not, absolutely not. We have subsequent evidence, et cetera, et cetera. But you're getting this interesting um, pushback now that didn't necessarily exist before in the public response to the media finally saying, look, you cannot believe, you cannot credit every single Ukrainian news or political source that tells you that those dastardly Russians have done something cruel and evil. We're now seeing multiple examples of accidental bombings of oneself. There was the whole question about who was really responsible for that dam being destroyed some months ago. And finally, some skepticism is creeping into the media lens. But now that even The New York Times is getting an incredible amount of pushback for simply reporting their findings and their independent investigation, which, by the way, the Ukrainians tried to block in the first place, into what the actual cause of that horrific bombing was. I, I'm glad to hear The New York Times is doing a better job with this. I hadn't quite noticed that, but I, I believe what you're saying. Um, on cable news, unfortunately, I'm still seeing a lot. I mean, they're just, they're in love with the, you know, TV news is in love with war reporting, kind of in general, the on-the-ground people and talking about it. And it is, and it is horrible. I'm not underplaying how horrible it is. I wish Russia hadn't done this. If we had a way to prevent or deter this action that would not result in World War III, I would be, I, I would, you know, seriously consider taking it. But the reality is we have to look out for U.S. interests, and it's not in U.S. interests to have a greater confrontation with Russia over whether part of Ukrainian territory is not going to be part of Ukraine anymore. Yeah, Zelensky is and we're not obligated to because it's not final, part of NATO. Yeah. We're not obligated to defend yeah. them. Zelensky is characterizing this as the final war, but it almost feels like they're angling for it yeah. to be a final war. It, is, it will only be the final war. If the we treat it like holidays. that, it will be. Exactly. Well, now Biden also spoke in front of the U.N. General Assembly yesterday, where he took the following shots toward Russia. Russia alone, Russia alone bears responsibility for this war. Russia alone has the power to end this war immediately. And it's Russia alone that stands in the way of peace, because the Russia's price for peace is Ukraine's capitulation, Ukraine's territory, and Ukraine's children. Russia believes that the world— Yeah, I mean, that's right in line with what Zelensky is saying, that these are e extremely stark moral stakes. And, and, I mean, if, you know, if you believe this, if you believe this is, this is the last war, this is the great war is here, I mean, why are we then just contributing meager amounts of money and, you know, second- and third-rate weaponry? Um, and why is, our, why is our Congress not declaring war on Russia? Yeah. I mean, the, the reason is obvious, mm -hmm. but that, so that explains why these statements are actually empty, and this rhetoric and its saber-rattling, and it's, I don't think it's helpful. And who is it for? Politically, Biden has to know this is a non-starter. 
and yet he continues. If, if he were to say, I don't know. there's no blank check for Ukraine. We, we don't want to support our allies against yeah. um, illegal aggression from Russia, but we don't have a blank check. He could strip so much of the energy away from his opponents like RFK Jr. and people on the right who are really getting a lot of traction off of being the anti-war candidate. And I, I, I don't know, it's, it's very confusing posture um, to me for him yeah. to be taking. We'll see how it goes. We'll see how it goes. But let us know what you think about this recent development. We'll have more rising for you right after this. Well, as we've been covering here, following Russell Brand's allegations of sexual assault, the comedian and commentator has been facing an onslaught of deplatforming and demonetization from various sites, including YouTube, the BBC, and Paramount+. Plus. Hmm. YouTube said in a statement to The Hill, quote, we have suspended monetization on Russell Brand's channel for violating our creator responsibility policy. If a creator's off-platform behavior harms our users, employees, or ecosystem, we take action to protect the community. The company added, this decision applies to all channels that may be owned or operated by Russell Brand. The Grey Zone's Max Blumenthal responded to this move by recalling a time his own outlet faced their version of deplatforming and discussed this situation with Brand himself. Let's watch. Once again, the relationship between big tech and the government becomes quite curious. It's interesting and exciting when there's an obvious adversarial component, such as in our last story. But when you see this kind of cohesion, this kind of collaboration, like you cite with the Canadian trucker story, and obviously now you've been a personal, I, gosh, should we say victim of it? You've certainly experienced it. It makes you realise that ultimately what we're sliding towards are more and more normalized, centralized, authoritarian models, centralized currency, ability to close down... We're hearing more and more stories about the intervention in people's financial affairs. It's, what, it's something that's becoming more prevalent, and I'm not surprised that you're a prominent and high-profile organization to be subject to that kind of obvious corruption. Max Blumenthal joins us now to discuss. Welcome, Max. Good to see you. And I believe that clip was from just before um, the accusations became public. You know, we've been discussing them a lot on the show. And obviously there's, you know, the context of the accusations themselves are, are, are one thing. But I think it's impossible and, and should be, you know, taken seriously. And we've been discussing them very seriously and, and, and you know, critic, somewhat critically of the underlying behavior, you know, despite it still being at the level of anonymous accusations. Um, but I, I, I am troubled still, you know, by by the fact it's stated in the story that this is all coming together now because of Russell, because of who Russell Brand is now, the audience he has now, and the uh, contrarian and adversarial relationship he has to the mainstream, and then also that even if you know you accept them as true, the accusations, which I'm, I'm not saying we're at the point where we should, but a a, a deplatforming of his content, of his speech, his words, his. Things he's created um, o over that seems very coordinated and very um, troubling and illiberal to me. We wanted to give you a chance to weigh in since you, know, you have experienced some of this as well as we just saw. Yeah, I mean, you took the words out of my mouth. Uh, I was on Russell Brand's show on September 11th. It was one of his last shows before the Russell Brand affair. And we were discussing the gray zone being uh, suspended or having its fundraiser suspended due to external concerns by GoFundMe and the whole way that crowdfunding uh, companies 
were operating within the broader framework of the censorship industrial complex where the state goes behind the scenes into the offices of Silicon Valley companies and tells them who to ban, who to remove. And we've experienced that constantly. So one, one thing is clear about the Russell brand affair, whatever the merits of the allegations are, and it's trial by media that he is being targeted because he has become perhaps the most prolific critic of corporate media and as well as, as well as the war state and the Ukraine proxy war on the planet. Maybe he maybe he's second to Tucker Carlson, but he's clearly threatening some very powerful interests. And so he is being targeted in a coordinated fashion in the same way that he articulated somewhat ironically when he interviewed me. And it began through tabloid media in the UK. You could look at any newsstand in London the day the allegations hit. It was on the front page of every paper. The editors from The Guardian to The Sun to The Mirror, they were feeding off, feasting off this with libidinal satisfaction because they wanted to see him destroyed for what he had said about them. He had turned on Hollywood as well. So you saw all these prominent figures denouncing him. And he hadn't yet to receive due process. And as I expected, he was demonetized by YouTube, which is really the ultimate form of cancellation in our culture because YouTube, which is owned by Google, is essentially the inner vortex of our digital commons, which are privatized yet controlled from the outside by powerful interests, including the Department of Homeland Security, British intelligence, and so on. So this raises a larger issue. What terms did he violate? And YouTube says that he violated their rules for off-platform behavior, that you have to conduct yourself well off the platform. Well, if none of these allegations are confirmed and they haven't been, uh, they haven't been seen through in a court of law, then who is Google and a bunch of anonymous corporate functionaries to determine if someone is guilty of essentially felonies? They have possibly committed defamation and it, and at the same time, they're hosting the George W. Bush Library on their platform. They're hosting the Obama Foundation, which has 235,000 subscribers. Barack Obama and his administration raped Libya. That is a confirmed fact. They destabilized the most prosperous nation in Africa and caused a jihadist onslaught that has swept across the Sahel. George W. Bush raped Iraq. Led, leading to the death of one million people, the rise of ISIS, the destabilization of that region. But they are welcome on YouTube's platform according to its guidelines governing off-platform behavior. So where are the standards here and who's setting him? It's the same institutions that are destroying large parts of the world that are setting these standards because the Obama Foundation, for example, is involved in determining what the disinformation and policy in terms of service are on platforms like YouTube. So I take your point, Max, but I was talking about this uh, a little bit with a friend uh, yesterday, and they pointed out that there is a distinction between being allowed on the app, which Russell Brand is still allowed on the app, and being able to monetize uh, your work on the app, which could be potentially analogized to something like working for Uber or a company that you use their platform so that you can earn money and they provide you with income via the app. So is there a difference in your view between uh, being actually deplatformed and not being allowed to do speech of any kind, even if the content, the substance of your speech doesn't violate the terms of an app, and whether or not a company like 
uh, Google or Uber or some other kind of rideshare delivery service decides that as a matter of policy, it doesn't want someone who's been accused of rape or assault or some other crime operating their vehicles, let's say. Well, YouTube wants to have it both ways. They want one of their most popular content creators to remain on the platform so he continues to draw an audience to its platform. They can't do to him what they did to Alex Jones, where he was completely removed. Uh, and at the same time, they're demonetizing him, which means necessarily, and any content creator on YouTube knows this, that his videos will receive much less traffic. So this is still an act of cancellation, and it feeds, it, it flows directly into the discussion I was having with Russell Brand about how dissenters and anti-establishment prominent anti-establishment voices are financially sanctioned inside the West for their political views, but they're never given due process. They're never given an explanation and they are never given the right to explain where they're right and where they're wrong. Now, the one time that we had to deal with a threat of a strike from YouTube and had something deleted without explanation, of course, was it was when we did a live stream at the Gray Zone about our report exposing a very famous British journalist named Paul Mason as a security state collaborator who is waging a campaign with security state intelligence operatives in the UK to attack the what he called the Corbynite left, the left of Jeremy Corbyn, another target of British tabloid media. No, I, and I, yeah, sorry, YouTube totally de deleted us and threatened us. So we have to question whether the state here is actually involved in the demonetization of Russell Brand. I think that's completely fair and that should be investigated, but I'm trying to drill down on a more generalizable point. I have objected to, for instance, the withholding of what feel more like utilities, you know, banking services, your ability to get on YouTube, to use yeah. the apps, to collect money through PayPal based on your underlying beliefs as very much an authoritarian move that I'm deeply concerned about. But what I'm asking here is if there's a difference in your view a substantive difference, even if you still think it's wrong, but a substantive difference between um, a almost an employee-employee relationship at the way you get when you're using Uber as a driver or when you're monetizing uh, your content on YouTube and them saying, well, we're no longer going to allow you to use money on, make money on this app through us versus access to a banking system or access to a speech platform or access to using the telephone line in your house or an internet service or something that feels more like a broadly available utility that shouldn't be stripped from you on the basis of whether or not some uh, impartial public figure thinks that you're a good or a bad person. Is that a, is, isn't that a meaningful difference? Well, we both oppose civil asset forfeiture in which accused drug dealers have all of their assets seized by the federal government in a completely authoritarian fashion, uh, often without due process. And sometimes they're guilty of, of dealing drugs, but I would no, argue- No, I agree, but that is that the right have... analogy though, Max? Like, let's just take the- It's not the, the right, it's, well, here's the, here's, the, here's, the, here's the point. That's something that happens in the public realm and they supposedly get their day in court, but more and more people are, are forced to rely on an entirely privatized system, whether it's GoFundMe or YouTube, in order to earn a living because they are content creators. That's the way that people are going to deliver, their audience wants to deliver them support. And if they are removed and demonetized from there, they're essentially financially sanctioned. I work with someone who's been removed, our managing editor at the Gray Zone, Wyatt Reed, from PayPal and Venmo for no reason, 
other than that he was reporting from the Russian separatist side of the Ukrainian conflict. Uh, I, I have several colleagues in the media who've been removed from PayPal, Venmo, they're getting kicked off TikTok. And slowly you can see as they get removed from these platforms, it's becoming harder and harder for them to earn a living. And that is precisely the point. And the state can't be held accountable the same way it can through civil asset forfeiture because it's doing it from behind the scenes. We don't know who made the decision to uh, buy YouTube or who, who prompted YouTube to make that decision. All we know is that it's incredibly coordinated. And we also should consider the fact that the Times of London that led this story has targeted so many dissidents over the years and that the Times of London is a favorite publication for the MI5, MI6 to plant material. So what I'm saying, Brianna, is that the state now has the convenience of removing people from being able to earn a living or from public view, canceling them and so on without putting its fingerprints on it. Now, I'm not saying that's exactly what's happening with Russell I mean, Brand. We, we, I'm using his case to make yet. a larger point. Yeah, yeah. I, I completely take that that could be the case and that should be investigated. But what we, I'm just trying to get yeah. to the bottom of what I we mean, do know right now. Go ahead. And, and, and it's, a, it's a little bit different. I mean, what disturbs me about this specifically with Russell Brand is that um, on the, you know, on the social media platforms, they have speech-related policies. You know, we disagree with a lot of those policies. This, this show has, you know, been a victim of those mm -hmm. policies in ways I don't agree with. But I, like, you know, what the, when they deplatform Alex Jones, you can maybe disagree with that. But it's at least related to um, this potentially defamatory speech, he's, the content he's producing on the platform. Mm -hmm. What I find so disturbing here is Russell Brand is being punished for um, content that very, may very well be bad, I, I guess it could very well even be criminal, but does not have anything to do with the content or the speech being the, being right. posted on the platform, which gets into this whole, we have to go back and we have to like, you know, de destroy works of art or throw away DVDs of like, that Harvey Weinstein happened to produce, even though there's tons of other creative people involved in it who are upstanding un until maybe they're not. And then we have to get rid of their things. That's the creepy part of this to me. Well, I mean, he's, he's not being demonetized for his content. His content supposedly adheres to YouTube's stated terms of service. I hadn't heard of this off-platform behavior. And YouTube has appointed itself the jury. It gets to be the jury because our digital commons are completely privatized. None of these charges have been adjudicated. He may be guilty. And here's another point worth considering. Let's say Russell Brand is totally guilty of everything. Let's say it's even worse than that. Let's say he's like Leatherface and he's throwing women on meat hooks <laughs> in a hellhole in some rural county in Texas. Millions and millions of people will still not believe that that is true because the media and specifically the Times of London and the Murdoch media has lied them into so many disastrous situations. They lied about Jeremy Corbyn, the labor leader, being an anti-Semite day in and day out. They lied the public into the Iraq war. They lied about uh, Muammar Gaddafi giving his troops Viagra. They lied about Syrian chemical attacks to trigger Western intervention there. They lie day in and day out. Charlotte Waste, the lead reporter on the Russell Brand story, destroyed the life of a beautician in England, falsely claiming she was destroying women's faces with rogue Botox treatments. Uh, it was they, when, when the Times of London was proven false, they still went to court and fought this poor woman's libel case anyway, tooth and nail. It destroyed her life. It destroyed her son's uh, mental fitness. And that's the Times of London. They went after so many dissidents that I know with front page stories 
in over arcane themes that seemed kind of irrelevant to the public, but which threatened the British intelligence services and British financial interests. And so the public will not believe anything about Russell Brand because of the way that the mainstream media has conducted itself. And that's what needs to be considered here. The well, mainstream media yeah. has indeed proven itself an enemy of the people. Max, let's play that thought experiment that you opened up there out a little bit. I completely take your point that the media has made itself untrustworthy, but there are aspects of these allegations that Russell Brand has admitted to in his books as part of his rehabilitation process. And so there's a separate conversation that I think needs to be had about what it means to be re rehabilitated, whether or not there's anything that someone like Russell Brand or anybody else who has admitted to being misogynistic and and be in the past and being embarrassed about their past behavior can do to really make amends to their victims and move forward. But taking your thought experiment, even if it is true, the media has discredited itself, that's fine. But if it is true, what do you think is a reasonable and responsible response from a uh, institution like Google or anyone else? And what should the response be from viewers, if, he, if people do find, even if it's not illegal, it to be distasteful for him to have had this relationship with a 16-year-old or the like, what, 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 what would be appropriate? Would it be appropriate for Google or, let's say, again, in the analogy, Uber to say, you can no longer drive my cars for me, you can no longer monetize yourself on my app because you engaged in a relationship with a 16-year-old? or you were coercive or did some of the things that she accused of them, like removing a condom in the, in the midst of a sexual intercourse without her consent, those kinds of things. Which Jul Julian Assange was accused of doing that, and he's been cleared of all rape charges, but it was the rape charges that were used to basically hole him up in the Ecuadorian I, embassy in I, London, I, make him I a de facto that. prisoner. So it's impossible to, we're responding to a it. situation we're responding to a situation or a, a scenario that's been manufactured by interests that are completely hostile to having any reasonable response. See, Max, my response and, would be and, that and even... So, so go ahead, go ahead. I, so I, I would say that YouTube even has if, created, a, created a scenario... <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, you go ahead. I'm sorry, there's a bit of a delay, it seems. I was going to say that my response to the Julian Assange example would be, even if ever, all of the allegations were true, which I, they weren't, but even if all of the allegations were true, that means absolutely nothing about the value of his disclosures, right? That means absolutely nothing about the value of WikiLeaks. And I would similarly understand an argument like that about Russell Brand. The things that he's talking about, the truth to power, the content of his show is still valuable to people, regardless of whether or not these allegations are true. I think that's a, that's a fundamentally ethical position to take. But I do think that what some people are bristling about is a failure to acknowledge that, yes, it would be bad if some of this stuff is true, and that it might be worth investigating, even if we shouldn't rush to judgment. Well, that that's an ethical question. It's not a question for YouTube, because YouTube clearly is distorted on a gargantuan scale from an ethical point of view. As I pointed out, they are hosting people who have committed titanic crimes on their platform and allow them to monetize. So what they've done but, but is do highlight they, is, the contradictions and set up a scenario where pretty much anyone can be demonetized if they're accused of something. And we both know, even we, we personally know people in the alternative media world who've course. been falsely accused of these things. I mean, I could point to uh, a Jordan Chariton. I mean, I, he, he attacks me constantly to get attention, but I don't mind pointing out that he was falsely accused in a horrific way, lost his job and he had his career his destroyed. Channel. 
he is able to monetize his channel. And Barack Obama, the examples that you were giving of all of these world well, leaders. Well, right who now, Jordan Charrington, under these rules, would ha would probably be demonetized just by being accused. And so it's important for us to demand due process and to call out the contradictions of this completely privatized, state-manipulated digital commons that does not serve us in any way. And that's why so many alternative platforms are being created, which creates an, an, another ethical dilemma. Yeah, I, I was just trying to make the point that Barack Obama is not, I, I agree with everything you're saying about him and that obviously his crimes are worse than any individual crimes that Russell Brand or anybody else could be accused of, but that he does not have a YouTube page as I understand it and isn't monetizing anything. And so we don't really have that as a test case. So again, the thought experiment was- So we have Bill true, Clinton, the Clinton Global Initiative just hosted a parallel diplomatic uh, kind of pay for play meeting outside the UN just yesterday. But Max, that's Bill not Clinton Bill Clinton's... has been accused by multiple, multiple women, and the Clinton Global Initiative and Clinton Foundation are able to monetize on YouTube. I mean, right, but, where are the standards Max, here? <laughs> Max, we're talking about whether or not a, 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 a content creator, someone with a website... I mean, the Obamas had a, had a documentary, right? On uh, They have a documentary, they had a podcast, they had... They yeah, don't, it's, it's exactly They have a deal with Netflix. Thing. They had a $100 million they have, deal right, with but, Netflix. But Netflix hasn't... You know, if we're talking about Netflix taking down Russell Brand versus Netflix taking down Obama, I think that's a fair comparison. But I'm asking well, about this YouTube... I'm specifically asking about this YouTube policy because it is difficult to ascertain. I'm, I'm legitimately trying to ascertain how much this is a deviation from their standard practice by finding analogous cases. And I'm- I, You I'm, don't have I'm, powerful people coming to YouTube or Google and telling them, you need to remove this person because they have been accused of serious crimes when it comes to Barack Obama, Bill Clinton, George W. Bush. But and again, so Max, it's obvious specific, to the public why, why certain Brand people hasn't are being targeted. Let's, let's be specific here. Russell Brand hasn't been removed. The issue is that he's been demonetized. Right. One of the major dividing lines in our political culture right now is whether you think Donald Trump is being targeted with a quasi weekly indictment because he threatened the quote unquote deep state or because he actually committed heinous crimes that no other president has ever been committed and that this is worse than Watergate. And, and I would say that's what the election is going to be decided on. And so the Russell Brand case really fits into that dividing line in our political culture. Do you trust the system or not? And I would argue that most people do not trust the system, but the problem is in the US, they vote with their feet, which means they do not vote at all because they're so checked out of the system. So here's a case where powerful interests are obviously coming to YouTube to shut down someone who may have actually done horrible things, but they're doing it not because he did those horrible things. These, this is well known in Hollywood. He's written about it. Everyone knew about his antics. Russell Brand was never shy about it when he uh, attempted to rehabilitate himself. They're doing it because he threatened to, he's interfering with the objectives of this transatlantic establishment, which has destroyed countries across the world and, who's, and, and, who, and, and who the authors of that destruction are welcomed by those same institutions. David Frum is the toast of Democratic part, Party uh, elite in Washington, D.C. He's the guy who wrote the notorious lie into George W. Bush's speech that Iraq was involved in an axis of evil with weapons of mass destruction. Um, it, 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 Dick Cheney is still free to walk around in public. This is a guy who made billions of dollars off an Iraq war that he managed from day one while possibly even outing a CIA operative, Valerie Plame, which should have been a crime. I mean, everybody sees it in the public that the people who are accused and the, are, and, and, 
the people who are demonetized and financially censored or politically censored are the ones that threaten the interests of the worst criminals and propagators of disinformation in our society who happen to be in control of the social media platforms. Well, we gotta leave it there. Max Blumenthal, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks a lot. The Heritage Foundation's oversight project has released a new memo, including evidence which shows that the Department of Justice during the Trump administration well, may have concealed evidence in an effort to lend political support to Joe Biden. According to the memo, there are six ways the DOJ under the Trump and Biden administrations acted to conceal and condone connections between members of the Biden family and the CEFC, Chinese energy company. Joining us now to break down the key aspects of the memo is director of the Oversight Project at the Heritage Foundation, Mike Howell. Welcome to Rising. Hey, thanks for having me. So perhaps we should start by just toplining what the allegations are or what the alleged wrongdoing is with respect to Hunter Biden, the CF, uh, the Chinese energy company, and Joe Biden himself, because I think that some of the pushback the Democrats have been giving is even if you prove that Hunter Biden is corrupt, what does that actually mean about Joe Biden? Yeah, so on your, your second point first, Joe Biden's been established as a key part of the business strategy of Hunter Biden in multiple aspects. We could start with being in the meetings, being at dinners with key business partners, Hunter traveling on Air Force Two, the sharing of bank accounts between Hunter and Joe, the payment of 10% to the big guy. Uh, we can go through the multiple pseudonym emails and burner phones that Joe used to communicate with Hunter through the course of his business dealings. And we can also go to the ongoing cover-up and the sweetheart treatment of Hunter Biden by Joe Biden's DOJ. Joe Biden has been involved in, in all aspects of his family's life. I mean, he was the product, as uh, Devin Archer testified. I think Comer's identified well over 10 to, to 20 Biden family members who were receiving the improper payments of, you know, north of $20 million from some of the most corruption or corrupt areas of the world. And the memo we put out is just one aspect of that. But all trails lead directly to Joe Biden. I know this is the, the left's defense of these allegations. I just don't think that's their, their best one because everything I just went over uh, shows Joe Biden involved in this routinely. So one of the other areas of pushback we hear is that, you know, if it's if it's so rock solid, if it's so out there, you know, why did uh, under the Trump administration nothing kind of come out of this? That's a point Brianna's brought up uh, many times. So in, in your memo, I think you begin to answer that question. So so take it away. Absolutely. So one aspect of this memo, it's just a slice of the corruption pie here. Uh, Hunter was in business, obviously, with the CCP that's been established. One of the key individuals there was a man named Patrick Ho, who was actually arrested uh, under a foreign corrupts practice violation when he was bribing, I think, a Ugandan and, and Chad official. So he served some jail time. But in the course of the prosecution of Patrick Ho, who through his, you know, who was working with a company called CEFC, uh, was working with Hunter as well. And CFC tried to acquire Westinghouse, obviously a company with massive uh, assets for the U.S. government, nuclear-related things. Um, Patrick Ho became the subject of FISA surveillance, okay, because he was a known CCP asset. In fact, Hunter Biden referred to Patrick Ho as the bleeping spy chief of China on his on his laptop. And so, during the course of the prosecution and investigation of Patrick Ho, a lot of very funny things happened and out of process things. And uh, when we see these things as investigators, those are red flags. Here's a couple of them. One is it appears in you know the public records that DOJ used, they made every attempt to hide the connections to the Bidens, including the, the redacting of Hunter's name in the transcripts. 
Two is that if there was FISA surveillance of Patrick Ho, and we know that there is a series of ongoing communications between Ho and Biden, why were that was that document set not used in furtherance of the other prosecutions? And then you have this very you know odd fact pattern, which to me stinks of a, a shady deal. Is Patrick's whole lawyer actually ended up being Hunter Biden during the case of this? Hunter testified at his plea hearing that he was paid $1 million in legal services for Patrick O. Now, I seriously doubt Hunter was providing any criminal defense uh, legal services. It, it looks to me like a sweetheart payment to, to buy influence. But this is a million dollars you know, paid by a CCP agent to the son of you know, the now president to help build up his political bona fides. And then you also have very questionable uh, FBI entanglement in this. You have somebody who uh, named Charles McGonigal, who I believe has a status hearing tomorrow, in a case where he was taking undisclosed and improper meetings with foreign officials as it related to the case. So all of these things are going on that stink to, to high heaven. And you have the Trump administration's DOJ, which, I mean, we use the term Trump administration to uh, infer that he had some sort of control or you know, perhaps he did have potential control. But the point I'm making is this was not a, uh, you know, Trump prosecution of Patrick Ho. This was very settled bureaucrats handling this case in a manner that demonstrated political favoritism. And so when I hear why did Trump's DOJ prosecute these things fully, I agree they should have. But the fact is, through this memo and other things we've released, it shows that DOJ was not on full bore with going after, you know, the Bidens in this. And there's a lot more we can talk about, but I'll leave it there. Yeah, I'll be honest. I am I'm very sympathetic to the idea that Hunter Biden seems to have, even if not in a legally um, accountable, like accountable way, uh, participated in influence peddling, definitely uh, has extremely bad optics and has behaved in a way that diminishes the integrity of the offices his father has held. At the same time, it's curious to me that we would characterize the actions under the Biden administration and his DOJ as intentionally working to cover up um, Hunter Biden's actions and protect Hunter Biden, and that there's all of this direction that we presume there, while letting the Trump administration's DOJ off the hook, saying, well, he couldn't possibly control the DOJ, et cetera, et cetera. I, I, I am still not convinced that you can say that the Trump DOJ didn't vet this as far as it could or wanted to. So either the Trump DOJ was also not interested in fully following this through, perhaps because this kind of corruption is frankly endemic to political families, including Trump's own family, and they don't want to go down that road of saying we're no longer able to get our relatives in these kind of influence peddling schemes. At the same time that we're saying whatever happens now under uh, Joe Biden's presidency, is of course an intentional cover-up. I mean, how do you how do you parse that? Why why aren't you more frustrated, or why why don't you have more skepticism that there isn't perhaps more there, and that Donald Trump wasn't able to find it. more, or on the alternative, didn't want to find more? Right, I completely agree with you in your your second part there. I think the Trump DOJ did an awful job here. I think they did an awful job in a lot of things, particularly when you have former AG Barr saying that they investigated all these allegations of voter fraud, and we now know that they did not do that. Uh, as it relates to a lot of the handling of some of the FBI investigations that were put the brakes on, as it relates to the FD-1023 and uh, other documents that have come to light uh, demonstrating evidence implicating Biden and corruption, they clearly did not follow through on those. You have the FBI at that time opening as many cases based on very little predication against President Trump, some of which are still ongoing, uh, and then shutting the door on others. And so I think it's completely fair to say 
that Donald Trump did not take full control of the Department of Justice and FBI. And so I did not read the actions of them as an attempt to sort of, you know, get after these things. I think they were disinterested in that. And there was no uh, control over those organizations, even at the times with confirmed Senate leadership atop of them. I think there was an apprehension to go into this space, uh, particularly when on they were on the defensive the whole time for the, the Russia now hoax that we can all agree on, a uh, narrative that was peddled through and then debunked. But as it relates to President Biden, I don't think they had an option here. I mean, they had to go after these things. With the firing of Viktor Shokin, uh, the Ukrainian prosecutor that was going after uh, Hunter, and then this series of actions that relate to Ukraine, there was corruption staring the U.S. government square in the face. And I think we're dealing with the consequences of that now and this kind of long and winding fact pattern that was allowed to get more complicated. Uh, the money laundering, which appears to me to be the scheme they used, even more, you know, accounts and other things that are taking more time to unwind, all in the context of us having this global, you know, kind of relationship with pouring billions of dollars into Ukraine, a region that has corrupted our own politics at the highest level. And so I put the blame squarely at the feet of all those in the FBI and DOJ, even those, actually particularly those under the Trump administration. And uh, to your first point, it is clear as day to me that the DOJ under Biden has given Hunter Biden the sweetheart uh, treatment. This is evident with the plea deal, which we were in federal court and submitted a monster of an amicus brief, first one to do to point out how out of order that plea bargain was, where they wanted to let Hunter off the hook for everything. Right. Uh, this news Although that of is a, the that's country. a Trump appointee, right, David Weiss? David Weiss was, uh, he's blue-slipped in Delaware, which means he was the guy the two senators would allow, the two Democrat senators. He is by no characterization a Trumpy, but yes, Donald Trump put him forward as a U.S. attorney. He was then again put forward uh, by Democrats. I, I think, obviously, uh, it was a mistake to have that guy in the spot. It's even a bigger mistake to uh, the earlier point about Biden's role in this, to appoint him to special counsel when I think Weiss should be the one also under investigation for his kind of collusion and sweetheart treatment of the Hunter investigation and what he did to the IRS career prosecutors, whistleblowers who have testified publicly uh, as to how their investigation had the brakes put on it. Mike, I'm sure you can appreciate that to the casual ear, it does sound like every time there's an investigation and it doesn't turn up results, every time there's an investigator who doesn't turn up results, it does seem like the next move is to say, well, the investigator who was appointed by the guy who is now likely to be the Republican nominee and who had the most to win, the most to gain by having a successful investigation, just did a bad job. He made a mistake. We have to plumb another well. There's another investigation to be done. If we put another guy in charge, then we'll turn up results. And that this has been going on now for five, six years, you know, what, what, what is the end of this? What, what do you see to be, who do you think should be in charge? What kind of investigation would you like to see? We have the House now, a Republican House all over this. You know, at what point does this start to seem as, like as much of a political persecution as the repeated indictments of Donald Trump is seen in the eyes of many people in this country? Right. I don't blame Americans for having lost faith in the institutions, especially those at law enforcement. I, I agree with all those concerns. I frankly don't have faith in those institutions. But I will point out something that people, investigators on the outside, people like the Heritage Oversight Project, whistleblowers, a few staffers in the House of Representatives have turned up mountains of evidence that the FBI, allegedly the most premier law enforcement agency in the world, uh, either did not have or did not you know, make use of or Garland did not. And so evidence is being put forward in the format of, you know, whether it's bank records, 
uh, money money movement uh, connections, whistleblowers uh, talking about the evidence they discovered. And so we should be, our first question should be, why didn't the FBI have this or do anything with it? This stuff's only coming out now. And so I think that goes to the integrity of, of the system, which since the Hillary Clinton saga with, with Comey, I think has really just fumbled their way through the highest level uh, dealings in this country. Unless it relates to President Trump, then it's full bore ahead at every different level of the system. But that's just a, a different pace usage. Mike Howell, thank you so much for joining us. That was very informative. We really appreciate it. Thank you both. Nervous about the 2024 presidential race? Well, don't worry, just chill. That's the message the Biden White House team is giving to Democrats who are, in fact, worried about Joe Biden's age and current poll numbers. This is according to Axios. Mike Donilon, a senior White House advisor, is telling nervous Democrats that the issues of abortion and Donald Trump will propel Biden to re-election no matter what. According to Axios, in private conversations, some Democrats, however, worry that the White House aids confidence in Biden's 2024 re-election hubris. The White House is ignoring concerns over impeachment talks, Hunter Biden's indictment, Joe Biden's age, and the auto strike facing the country, and instead is continuing to focus its message on, quote, protecting democracy, abortion rights, and a resilient economy. Axios writes, Democratic strategist and CEO of Elite Change, Dallas Jones, joins us to weigh in on these conversations currently going on ahead of 2024. Welcome, Dallas. Good morning. Thank you for having me. All right. So do you think that that's an accurate characterization of what the Democratic Party is saying, that basically there's no need to worry about the age stuff or the Hunter Biden stuff, that at the end of the day, uh, the uh, abortion issue will motivate enough people to come out along with the Stop Trump issue and the, the, that uh, Biden will persevere once again? Well, I mean, this is exactly what they should be saying. This is what the polling suggests. This, these are the issues that Americans are concerned about. And, and so, you know, they, they have to create a, a sense of uh, understanding that there is a pathway forward. Uh, the other part of this is that, you know, we also have to look at what the issues on the other side are. I mean, for the first time, uh, the the Republican nominee or any nominee for for the presidency uh, will have been indicted a number of times, um, and and who knows what else comes up before the actual election. And so, you know, um, people are seeing gains in this economy. Um, it's something that the Biden White House should be talking about, and 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 so they're following they're following uh, the pathway um, that they see to victory. But in, you know, in poll after poll, Dem Democrats, majorities of Democrats say they really do wish they had another nominee to choose from, uh, that they, they, Americans of all political stripes are concerned about his age. And of course, you know, we're gearing up for uh, just constant inquiries into the Hunter Biden matter to the extent that, you know, m maybe many independent voters, you know, swing voters will say, well, Donald Trump is facing sorts of, you know, criminal things, but Joe Biden's got this thing over here too. It's kind of a wash. Maybe I'll stay home. I'm smiling because sure, that's what the polls say, but they don't. They don't have another nominee. And so once we once the smoke clears and we get beyond this talk about another nominee, whether it be for president, another nominee for the vice presidency, this is the Biden-Harris ticket. And then voters will be forced to weigh the Biden-Harris ticket versus the Trump and God knows who 
ticket. And so when we add that all up and when we begin to, to use our scales to weigh what is in the greater good of, of the voters, what is in the greater good of the country, democracy is at stake in this election. There have been attacks on, 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 on abortion rights in this country. People have to weigh these things. And, and so I think, you know, understanding what the polls say, under, understanding where the president is right now, today, um, the reality is, is that this is how this is going to shape up unless there is some great uprising in uh, in the Republican Party and they do not do what it appears they are going to do, which is to renominate Donald Trump. And so, you know, we on our side have to do a better job of, of translating to voters um, that book. Um, you know, we, we have been working. We have been working to fix the wrongs of, 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 of the last four years of policy before the Biden-Harris administration. We have been working to create a better economy. We have been, we have been working to increase opportunities for the middle class. Um, this is what this this is the work. And so happy to have a, a conversation about, you know, where do we go from here? But, you know, what is being presented on the other side is dismal for this country. Dallas, let's talk about um, public perception of Joe Biden for a second. From a poll earlier, released earlier this month from CNN and SSRS, Biden's job approval rating was at 39 percent, with 58 percent of Americans disapproving of his presidency thus far. 46 percent of registered voters said that any Republican would be better than Biden next year. Uh, we discussed a poll yesterday that showed, I think there were three uh, Republican candidates, including Tim Scott, I think, and Nikki Haley, that in a head-to-head -head matchup with Joe Biden. Um, poll suggested that they would beat Joe Biden. And many folks are remembering 2016, a period during which Hillary Clinton almost never got outside of the statute of uh, the, the deviation of um, uh, ahead of Joe Biden, except for, I think, the weeks, couple of weeks after the Access Hollywood tape. And it was too close to comfort. And of course, she obviously lost. So for those people who might agree with you that Trump is an existential threat, why not just have a primary to see if there is a Democratic candidate that emerges that can actually fare better against some of these people, not just Donald Trump, but also people like Nikki Haley and Tim Scott, instead of forcing Americans into the situation where they're having to support a lackluster candidate without any sense of what America has to offer. Joe Biden is the president of the United States of America. We stand by his record as Democrats. Our party stands behind our president. Our, our party stands behind the gains that have tried to be that that we are working to make. But Dallas, the um, voters obviously the don't. That's the question. So the majority of Democratic voters don't want Biden to be the nominee. They would prefer not to have a Biden-Trump matchup. So what do you say to the voters? I get that members of the Democratic Party, people who work for the Democratic Party, people who are bound to party first might feel that way. But what about the millions of American voters who feel like they're having this Choice shoved down their throats. Well, respectfully, polling is not is is not a litmus for for what for the voters. Uh, an election is the litmus for the voters, right? And so the voters will determine whether or not they truly reject this president at the vote at at, at 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 the voting station. Polling suggested, as you pointed out in 2016, that Donald Trump should have never been president of the United States. And if that polling would have been accurate, maybe we wouldn't be sitting here having this conversation today. But it wasn't. It was. But Dallas, this, this is my question: If voters decide, why not have an open primary so that voters can actually decide instead of doing what the Democratic Party has done, which is to say there's not going to be a primary. 
We're going to change the order of the primary states in a way that is, frankly, advantageous to Joe Biden and disadvantageous to other candidates. We're going to promulgate rules that penalize vendors that work for insurgent candidacies. We're going to have a media organization that flatly states things like, we are not having a primary, ignoring the fact that there are people who are running in the race, whether, whether or not you like those people, they are running, but the media is largely, the mainstream media is largely lying to the public about that reality. If it is up to voters, why not just have a fair contest and a primary, and if Biden wins it, he wins it. But if he doesn't, well, then the people will have spoken. Well, and again, I, I think you, you you made the case, like, there, there is a primary that, that people are able to enter to. We're too far down the line. People have not entered into the race. And, 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 and I mean, what are we honestly talking about? Who's... Who, you know, we're, we're having a primary. No one has said that they, they are trying to challenge this president from this Two side of the aisle. Two Williamson and RFK Jr. Two people very much have entered to the Democratic primary, as, as Robbie just said. And, 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 and they're running. They are running. They're running. Yeah, but the, issue, not, the not, issue is, Dallas, that there's no debates. Right? The Democratic Party has chosen its candidate, as they, have, they argued in court back in 2016, they had the right to do when uh, Bernie Sa Sanders was challenging the way that they were running the primary at that point. They argued in their own court documents that they don't have to have a fair and open primary, that they can select candidates as a corporation, and that seems to be what they've done in this case. But the question is, while that is their right to do as a legal entity, whether or not that's in the best interest of the American public, who are seeing this and thinking, well, this isn't very democratic. Well, I mean, again, <laughs> RFK, his, his, his folks are out there. Look, I'm not advocating for any decision that, that, that the party apparatus has made in, in terms of how they're running the primary. You know, I'm, 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 not, I'm not advocating for that. I'm not saying that that's right. I'm not saying that that's wrong. You know, what I am saying is that in, in terms of the polling and this presidency is that there is a lot of work to be done. I'm not saying that the, the messaging and, and, and translating to the American public what the agenda has been and how it has benefited them has 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 been handled in, in the optimal way. So what I'm saying is that there's still a long ways to go uh, as we move forward in this election cycle for 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 there to be gains in the current polling. We've seen it rise. We've seen it fall. And so, I, you know, I. I I think the question about how the primary is handled and, 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 and what's happening, you know, I think that's something that, that, that party officials have to ultimately be responsible for. And if it will cost us uh, the American presidency as a party, you know, that's something that those people that are in charge of, of making these decisions will, will, will have to be held accountable for. Dallas Jones, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Thank you. The United Auto Workers strike continues for a fifth day with no breakthroughs and no end in sight. The Biden White House is continuing to walk the tightrope between support for the strikers and not getting too involved. Reuters reporter Jeff Mason tweeted that the White House says POTUS is wearing a red tie today in solidarity with UAW workers across the country. Meanwhile, former President Trump is planning to visit Michigan instead of attending the next GOP debate, mulling making an appearance at the Detroit picket line. This is according to MSNBC. Now, UAW President Sean Fain 
doesn't think too highly of Trump's visit to come, telling HuffPost labor reporter David Jameson, quote, every fiber of our union is being poured into fighting the billionaire class and an economy that rich enriches people like Donald Trump at the expense of workers. We can't keep electing billionaires and millionaires. Mm. Workers don't appear to be thrilled about President Biden either, asked if they want Biden's team to aid with negotiations. This is what they told a Fox Business News reporter. Let's listen. We are a united group of people. We don't need the president's help. It's our fight. Let us fight our fight. That's all we want. We don't want to hurt the economy. We don't want to be here not getting paid peanuts. But, you know, it's our fight. Fight for our life. I think uh, we can negotiate our contract with the company without uh, the government getting involved. So that's interesting that you heard from people who don't actually want Biden present there. Yeah, and I'm I wonder not... if they got asked about Trump, if they'd say, yeah, we don't want Trump here either. Maybe. Um, I suspect that is the case. I think that historically the Democratic Party was able to stitch together a coalition after the Southern strategy and realignment based on stridently protecting the interests of workers in the United States. It genuinely was the working class, low-income party, and it was able to get get that buy-in through the New Deal era by uh, establishing the NLRB, labor protections, and fighting for at least a decade or so uh, on the side of the workers. Then what ended up happening after some Republican victories in the 70s and 80s is that they, the Democratic Party looked within itself and said, okay, this game isn't working. We are going to—we need to participate in this new media of television, which required a lot of fundraising for advertisements and to have better reach. And we're going to start going to those same corporatists that the Republican Party has been using to fund its campaigns for the last 20 years and seek them out as well. But the interests of those corporations are fundamentally misaligned with the interests of workers. And so Democratic Party has had one foothold in as a pro-worker party only because workers haven't had another place to go, because Republicans have shown no interest whatsoever in protecting labor rights or anything like that. Instead, what Republicans do, you see this a lot in these southern states, they establish so-called right-to-work states where there are no union protections, where you could be fired without cause. They have supported policies, Democrats and Republicans alike, shipping jobs overseas, and workers have felt largely disaffected and have lessened their commitment to either party, but particularly the Republican Party, which never stood a chance. And so now, if you're looking at someone like Joe Biden, who who potentially might want to fly in and say, hey, I'm standing with workers, I'm the most pro-worker president ever, at the same time that he just crushed what could have been the most historically significant labor actions in American history and the railroad strike just earlier this year, I would be looking askance at him, too. Right. Uh, I think it remains to be seen whether they react positively to Trump there. I bet a lot of them will. I mean, this is the kind of mismatch we're dealing with. I mean, you're, the history you just diagnosed is obviously correct. Um, the Republican Party did not have policies that were pro-labor, that were certainly were not pro-union. Um, again, I, 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 we dis probably disagree on the, the fundamentals of those policies, whether they're good ideas or not. I support right to work. I you know, support letting companies ship jobs overseas if that's what is more economically beneficial for them. Sorry. But the Republican Party did stand for those things. It's gotten—it hasn't really changed, necessarily. You're right that at the end of the day, the policies aren't different. But the Republican Party does um, see, I, I think, to the extent that they've leaned into the cultural stuff, 
knows that their base is increasingly um, on cultural issues is is a, more of a working class base. So that's why they talk about those things because they don't really want to change their they economic agenda. They don't want to change their economic much. agenda, and that's why a moment like this. Just well, Democrats don't want to change their economic agenda either. But sure, but just talking about labor rights is an amazing thing because we're getting out of all of this partisan bullcrap. And there are yeah. people that are working at the auto plant that are Republican, that are Democrats, that have lean lean socially one way or lean socially another way. It's Michigan. It's a purple state. But at the end of the day, they are all united around this fundamental class issue. And I'll tell you who hates that. It's the corporate base of both of these parties. It's the corporate leadership of both of these parties. And that's why you're seeing all of this weird, cringy, mixed messaging across the board. At the end of the, culture right. issues don't matter to anybody who's standing on this picket line. And Ron DeSantis well, and Donald Trump. I don't Trump, know about that. Ron DeSantis or Donald Trump standing, showing up and saying, but don't you hate trans people? They don't care. These are people who bargained away some of their substantive rights uh, when there was the auto crisis under the Obama administration, who have been sitting here with stagnant wages while the CEOs of their company are now experiencing 40% hikes in their profit. The CEO making 20, what was it, like $26 million in salary. At the the same time that their inflation-adjusted dollars uh, uh, salaries are lower than they were 30 or 40 years ago, CEOs right, making 360 odd times. Maybe we can divvy up the CEO salary, send it back to the taxpayers who bailed out all these companies in the first place. That's what I would like to do. The 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 the, the fundamental issue here is whether or not the labor gains, the profits that are quite obviously being earned by these companies, should be distributed in a way that benefits the people who are doing the work. And Donald Trump understood on some level that there was an enormous public appetite for centering the interests of American workers over the profit shares of shareholders in the bottom line. So he's, he, he invade against TPP and these policies that, that sent job, American jobs overseas and decimated the Rust Belt, decimated the Midwest. And him saying that he was a champion of the people who were working in those areas is part of why he was able to pull so many voters. And he, I think, is savvy enough to understand that, which is why he's making this visit. But at the end of the day, it doesn't seem to me like the people who have experienced those policies and also experienced Donald Trump not fulfilling so many of his promises to reopen all of these companies around America are going to fall for him showing up, but not making explicit commitments to protecting I mean, these things, labor. These are contradictory ideas. If you want businesses to stay in America and to employ Americans, you have to make, you have to allow the regulatory climate to be favorable to them, and you have to allow them to set the w wages that are competitive. Again, if you force them to, to, you know, to, to pay wages or conditions that that they don't want to do, then they're going to ship those jobs overseas. Like, that's the reality. No, what you need to have is worker ownership. And so the decision-making is being done by the people who work at these companies that are buying the cars themselves. That used to be part of what people understood about capitalism. And frankly, the capitalists of yesteryears understood that if your own employees can't afford to buy your products, this was Ford's Model T, this was this was his blueprint. If, the, if your workers can't afford to buy the car that you're making, you're going to run out of a market and you're going to go out of business. And so that's the issue here. Do we want more own operated industries that are making decisions not on can I earn 45 cents more on every car, but do I want to sustain my family and my community by keeping the shop here? And you can see the contrast. I mean, if they the cars unaffordable, they won't be able to sell them. So they have an incentive to keep them The cars aren't unaffordable. There are, I don't know how many times we all got to say that there's been record profits. The cars are not unaffordable. Americans have been competing really successfully in the global car manufacturing industry because there's been a pivot. They're not like... Because there's been a pivot to a preference among consumers for American-made cars. 
these big kind of cars, and that's why we've been dominating the market as of late. If you want to get a clear contrast between how Republicans are talking about this issue and how genuinely working class uh, um, affiliated Democrats or independents like Bernie Sanders are talking about this issue, I want to just roll this clip uh, that the Bernie campaign put together showing the side by side here. In 1965, during this era of the great middle-class expansion in the United States, CEOs made about 20 times what their typical workers made. But as I noted to you, the CEO of GM makes 362 times what her typical employees make. I just want to make sure I get an answer from you. Is that okay? Do you think that's yeah. fair? Well, I, I think that ought to be left to the shareholders of that company. I, I'm somebody that believes in free enterprise. I think, I think those are decisions that can be made by, by shareholders and creating pressure. And I'll fully support how these publicly traded companies uh, operate. No, I strongly disagree. I think what's going on in America today in terms of income and wealth inequality, the fact that CEOs are now making 400 times more than their average worker, the fact that we have three people on top who own more wealth than the bottom half of America, the fact that during the last 50 years, the wages, the weekly wages of the average American worker are lower today than they were back then, is speaks to the anger that the American people are feeling and what this strike is about. The American people are sick and tired, in my view, Jake, and I've been all over this country, they are sick and tired of corporate greed in which the very richest people are becoming richer. The head of General Motors now makes $29 million a year. And yet if you go, if you're a new worker at, in the big three, you make less than $17 an hour. And, and I, I got to tell you, I don't think it's about the usual fault lines of the difference in salaries uh, between white collar and blue collar. I they have temp workers who are temp year after year after year who make far lower wages than other workers. You have profits there, 21 billion in profits in the first half of this year. So what you're seeing in the automobile industry, in my view, is what we're seeing all over this economy. Greed on the top, suffering on the part of the working class, and people are tired of it. Wages haven't gone up since the auto bailout in 2008. Meanwhile, the CEOs, their wages have gone up 40% in the last five years. I think, Jake, to tell you the truth, that all of us in this country have got to stand with the UAW now. They're not just fighting for decent wages and benefits for automobile workers. They're really standing up to the kind of corporate greed that is impacting tens and tens of millions of Americans. And what they are really saying, they're saying this to the big three, but I think that message has got to go out all over corporate America. You people on top, you've never had it so good more income and wealth inequality today than ever in the history of America. Richest people are becoming phenomenally richer. But 60% right. of American workers are living paycheck to paycheck. So UAW is standing up against corporate greed, and I applaud them for what they're doing. Well, look, I agree in part and disagree in part with what both of, their saying, what both of them are saying. But I'm not going to defend the shareholders of the business structure. They are greedy. They're welfare queens. They got bailed out by the American taxpayer. I would have never supported that in a million years. I would have let all those companies fail. If your company fails, that's on you. Sorry. That's how the system works. And, it's, and, and the government sweeping in to reorganize and rescue firms that don't make sound decisions is not the right way to run economy. So I'm not going to defend their You're Fine. Maybe their profits are illegitimate and should be given back to the American taxpayers. But, um, but, but, but like on the narrow question of whether the CEO was paid too much, 
I don't know. I don't really care. I don't think people need tax cuts. People want to be able to work for a wage that's fair. It's weird to say that we wouldn't want to—the the Republican Party seems to be largely adverse to handouts, welfare, all of these things. But at the end of the day, when there are working people who are working hard, who are just saying, I want my salary to be fair, I want to work and I want my salary to be fair. I want fair the pay— what they agree to pay you and what you say yes to. Right. That's, that's why they're saying no, and that's why they're striking, and this is a big whose side are you that's on, right. they don't have which to side are yes. you on moment, and I, you know, and it's for people to decide whether they want to stand with workers or they want to still stand with uh, corporate CEOs. More well, rising for you right after this. 2024 Democratic presidential hopeful Robert F. Kennedy Jr.'s campaign team is continuing to ask President Joe Biden for Secret Service protection. Robert F. Kennedy Jr.'s 2024 presidential campaign manager, Dennis Kucinich, wrote in an open letter to President Biden, I ask you in the spirit of patriotism, of fairness, and of good conscience to grant RFK Jr. the Secret Service protection that his circumstances so obviously warrant. RFK Jr. is not the only one in danger. Every person who attends a campaign event is at risk. A specter of violence haunts our political process. This comes after an armed man was arrested where RFK Jr. was speaking at a Hispanic Heritage Month event in Los Angeles last week. We talked about it earlier in the show. The man attempted to identify himself as a member of Kennedy's security team. 2020 presidential candidate Tulsi Gabbard wrote on X, the Biden administration's refusal of Robert Kennedy Jr.'s repeated request for Secret Service protection is the height of irresponsibility and callousness, showing their complete lack of concern for anyone who doesn't align with their political views. RFK Jr. also recently discussed the threat he poses to the Democratic Party's infrastructure. Pretty well documented the Democratic Party um, put their finger on the scale, their thumbs, their foot on the scale to make sure that Bernie Sanders could not get the, uh, the nomination. I think if Bernie Sanders had gotten the nomination, we would be in a very different place in our country today. And, um, but I, I, there's an antagonism and antipathy within the Democratic Party for, uh, for people who have true progressive values, who people who are try, uh, who are challenging the the dominance, the predominance of Wall Street interests of companies like BlackRock, State Street, Vanguard, um, and the military-industrial complex. You know, the Democratic Party used to be anti-war. It's now um, at the forefront of promoting these forever wars. Um, which are destroying our country. And, um, and so, you know, Bernie Sanders was a threat to that infrastructure, and I am 10 times the threat that Bernie Sanders was. I mean, honestly, at this point, if we can send $80 billion to Ukraine, we can spend a few million dollars giving RFK Jr. a security oh, for detail. Sure. But does he want those security I mean, that's, people? that's a good um, question. But it does seem like, at this point, the only reason not to do it. We talked in the last segment we did about this, about how Barack Obama was given uh, security in an unprecedented way, in terms of the timing of it, earlier than most people, because he was facing a unique threat. I don't know how many threats RFK Jr. generally is getting, but someone showing up armed to an event seems to me to be a sufficient red flag. There have been so many people joking about the assassinations of all of his loved ones. But at this point, it feels like the only reason not to give it to him is because it would be Petty. an acknowledgment from the Democratic Party that a primary is, in fact, happening. And that this is a serious candidate who yeah. people are talking about. Yeah. Um, yeah, it, it seems like a no-brainer to do it. Again, I don't know why he, he—so his Gavin DeBecker security team, whatever, seems like they're doing a great job. Mm. They. 
stopped this threat. Um, I, you know, given his own conviction mm -hmm. that inside RFK Jr.'s own conviction that inside forces were uh, were responsible for at least his uncle's death, mm -hmm. JFK. Um, I'm not sure why he would want to rely on the Secret mm -hmm. Service protection. But, um, but yeah, I, I think he should certainly have, given what happened, he should certainly have it. Tulsi's point is well taken, um, if that's what he wants, and there's no reason not to I mean, I'm it. sure he's up against some financial constraints, because hiring your own private security is very expensive. And, you know, I, again, I completely take skepticism of whether the, the state-provided security is going to be a danger to the candidate himself, but he's got to be weighing the fact that so many of the donations that he is bringing in uh, are got to be going to, to, to just keeping them alive and safe and protected in these obviously hostile environments. We haven't talked about this, but I've been hearing increasing chatter. Uh, I think some of it kind of coming from RFK Jr. himself or hinting at chatter of a of an independent or third party run, um, you know, given that it does seem like he's sort of peaked in the Democratic. Obviously, there's a lot of time. And if they were having an actual fair primary where there were debates and the whole system wasn't rigged against him, it could be a different story. But given that that reality, and you know, given that he's basically only getting attention from alternative, independent, right-wing media, um, I, I, I suspect he has peaked within the Democratic coalition. Like that's just, you know, I'm not giving my yeah. view of whether that's good or bad or not, but that's the trajectory. So, is he going to make a third-party run, either an independent run, or you know, I know that as I'm a member of the Libertarian Party, I know there is some affection among the Libertarian Party for him. So I think it will be interesting to see if a marriage, an arranged marriage takes place there. <laughs> yeah, I think this very issue is core to the dispute that we had with Chank on the show earlier this week. It's core to the dispute that I had with Chris and Kyle Kalinske on their podcast the week before. And it's the question of whether or not the Democratic Party will ever truly allow someone to participate that they have not chosen, that they have not anointed. And Jenk's point, which I agree with in part, that the media plays a huge role in this, like I take that. That is absolutely true. But I think it is an unholy alliance of a corporate Democratic media and the corporate Democratic Party that is preventing people from ever having an opportunity to break through. And we're seeing that right now with RFK Jr. Even having access to pretty significant media outlets with the Twitter spaces and the Russell Brands and the Bill Mars. And like he can get on TV, yeah. right? Fox News. Fox News. He can get on TV. But it's not enough if your Democratic Party won't let you have a debate. If Democratic acolytes on all those news stations are saying there is no debate, there are no other candidates in the race. And the, the key to unlocking it, increasingly, many progressives believe, yeah. is participating in the general election where you cannot be ignored because at very least the mainstream news has to cover you as a spoiler candidate. Jenk was right about that. I know you, you two argued about a lot of things um, No, I completely agree with his media he, point. His, yeah, his, I just his think it's criticism not of the media enough. was very savvy. Yeah, yeah. The media just, does decide to some, the establishment media has a choice just to not cover things or to cover them in a certain way that like this is some funny outlier that we're only paying attention sure. to the extent that it's bothersome and annoying to us. And you can get around it because you, you can build a following. Yes. You can go to all these independent shows and content producers like ourselves, um, but that you're still, you're still going, you know, you're but climbing what's the uphill. Difference? The media was also there aligned strongly against Bernie Sanders, but he was in February of 2020 right. polling evenly with Joe Biden and won the first three contests because despite the media being against him, there was in fact a primary. He was able to go to the debate stage and distinguish himself against the other kinds of candidates. He was on the ballot. He was able to participate. And that seems to be, to be the singular difference between 
I mean, there's many other differences, uh, you know, but there a, a significant difference between the kind of traction Bernie Sanders was able to get in an open I mean, Ber primary versus Bernie did have RFK Jr. I mean, obviously his I, I'm not trying to undercut his message was very different and anti-establishment. He was uh, he's a sitting U.S. senator. He's in terms of day to day, you know, he's involved in the political sure. process. He's he's his resume is. Um, is not is normal is not yeah. is not eccentric or to the same degree that you know RFK Jr. has has been a public advocate. He's not been in government before. Those kinds. Of, you know, Bernie had a normal resume. Yeah, I think all that is true. That's why I said different. not singular difference, yeah. but I think a substantial difference. And at the end of the day, despite Bernie having all of the successes he had, what ultimately failed him. I mean, the media would have helped, but the question is on the margins. There would positive media treatment been enough to overcome? Barack Obama picking up the phone and telling the person that was at that point right. leading, I believe, in the delegate count, Pete Buttigieg, to drop out of the race. Yeah, so that, I mean, these, these problems are the same Joe because Biden. these forces are not adversarial, exactly. right? The so media that, and yeah. the Barack Obama but and the establishment, those that, are all the same. That was then and today. My Whoever entire wants to tell the difference point, between these two pictures. That is my entire point. This yeah. is not a difficult point. Like, yeah. I don't know why sometimes, like, this is not hard. I, I agree with the part that Cenk is saying about the media, and also it's not enough. And what's frustrating with Cenk is I agree with you about the media, but if you are not willing to recognize that the Democratic Party is going to be as big a foe against you as the media, as the Republican Party, as any other interest in the, in the country, then you're going to keep flailing futilely and wasting all of the energy of the public on these candidates that aren't going to be able to participate in a primary. And also, Cenk Uger, as he has before, is going to tell you to vote for the Democratic candidate in the general. So what incentive is there for the Democratic Party to ever stop rigging the system the way that it is? You're ultimately validating the choice of selecting their candidate if you tell people to vote for Joe Biden, as Cenk Uger has done repeatedly. If you missed that interview yesterday, you should go check it out on YouTube, and we'll have more Rising right after this. Paramount Plus has followed YouTube and BBC's lead in distancing itself from comedian Russell Brand after several women accused him of sexual assault. NBC News reports the platform has removed one of Brand's stand-up comedy specials, Russell Brand in New York City. NBC reached out to the service for comment and did not hear back. Now, according to screenshots, the 2009 special was available on the streaming platform as of yesterday morning, but was taken down later uh, and yesterday was replaced with an error message. This is according to the Daily Mail. Brand's most recent comedy special, Russell Brand Rebirth, that's still available for the time being on Netflix, although I would not be surprised to see that disappeared um, maybe by the end of the day. This is so interesting because I remember the fervor around uh, Dave Chappelle's mm -hmm. comedy specials being, frankly, bigger than this and more than this. And Netflix never actually took anything down as far as I remember or could look up on the internet. There are episode, episodes of television shows that have something uh, like the culturally, or the uh, the um, the community episode where right. there's technically blackface yeah. because he's portraying a dark elf and it's play, it's not, it, it, it's a commentary on the mm -hmm. concept of blackface. That got taken down from, I can't remember if it was Netflix or mm -hmm. Hulu or something. Um, bottom line is I really don't like this trend. I think this is very bad. Um, the Again, you can feel however you want about the accusations against him. Obviously, they're very serious. They have some degree of documentation. Um, I think it's so. I, I think it's fine to be, um, you know, kind of waiting for see if more evidence emerges. But there, there's a lot there. At the same time, you know, being cognizant of the fact that they're coming out and they've been assembled now purposefully yeah. by a journalistic project solely because uh, that Russell Brand is now a influential figure in an alternative media ecosystem. I think that's yeah. transparently obvious. Well, but all of that aside, I don't. 
I, I, I don't like this. Again, all of those, you know, Netflix, again, is a private company, can do whatever it wants. But it's, it's like, I, the, 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 I, this is weird to say, it, the content didn't it, commit the alleged sexual assault, right? It's, it's, it seems like a very ass-covering, um, uh, uh, like, knee-jerk corporate PR response. Sure. Like, here's how we, we, we share, we show solidarity. We do, we... We take down a piece of content, a piece of art that doesn't really do anything for victims. Let, let's of just moot this out a little bit because okay. I'm—I don't know quite how I feel about it yet either. What if the argument is more akin to uh, our audience is going to have a negative reaction if they see, even in the short term, maybe they'll put it back up when it dies down a little bit. But if they see in the short term a controversial figure that they are likely not to like or to have negative feelings about, it feels like a tacit endorsement. So we're going to take this down temporarily while this blows over, or at least push it down the algorithm so it's not on the front page. Um, I'm reminded also that uh, after the uh, Bill Cosby allegations resurfaced in 2014, um, many stations stopped showing reruns, and you basically never see the Cosby show on TV anymore. I mean, do you think that those situations are analogous? Do you also agree that the Cosby, it was right to pull those Cosby episodes off of TV? Frankly, I don't think it's right to mm. pull those episodes. I mean, what, what about the other people involved in that That, that was what, my what about, issue at the time. I mean, I, Harvey Weinstein financed how many films? I'm sure you can find yeah. some of those films. You know, you know, repellent, disgusting, um, convicted rapist. And, uh, and, and is, you know, is everyone involved in his... Some, some of his victims are involved in his movies. Yeah. Probably don't want those... Uh, you know, um, uh, the Frida Kahlo biopic that he, uh, that he uh, helped finance. Um, uh, probably with Selma Hayek, is it? She probably doesn't mm -hmm. want that to never be seen again, right? Yeah. As, as frustrated as she was with his obvious conduct. Yeah, but there was also, I mean, I, I remember uh, Michael Moore at the time was working on his, I don't know if it's still his most recent film. I think it's the, uh, the, the film about Trump that he made. Had apparently done much of that work with the Weinstein company at the time the allegations really blew up, and he chose to left all, leave all of that work behind. You know, he was they were they owned that product, and he basically restarted the movie separate and apart um, from the Weinstein company after the allegations broke. So if you're in the middle of it, you can make that kind of Maybe decision. Maybe you're in the middle of it, but, but do I, we I, have to you know put things down the memory hole because decades later the person becomes significantly problematic in some way? Well, the, the other What's issue the limiting here principle is, here? The other issue for me is. As I understand it, and correct me if I'm wrong, he had written about much of this, maybe including the relationship with a 16-year-old in his book. So there is, I mean, even if you agree, as I do, it's not illegal in the UK apparently, but it is deeply morally suspect for a 30, in my humble subjective opinion, for a 31-year-old to be dating a 16-year-old. There is this question of why you know, like, why didn't you care a month ago, but now you care today? This, and I'm also reminded, there was this incident with um, Nate Parker. He's an actor, and he, uh, he's he been in stuff. Uh, but his biggest film he was producing and acting in was a um, Nat Turner, the Slave Rebellion um, guy uh, movie. When he was a teenager in college, he was charged with rape. It right. seems there's no dispute that he did it. Like, he and his Didn't friend— Didn't he serve time for no, it? No, his friend, who participated um, in the— uh, I guess, gang rape, mm. did go to jail. There was some bad—I mean, the law was quirky. Because he had had a prior sexual relationship with the woman, the judge basically said she had previously consented, so he didn't go to jail, but his friend did. I don't agree with the way the law worked, but that's what it was. And that was very open. That was public. It was on his Wikipedia page, I, I believe. I'm looking he, at it now. He started yeah. having this whole career, and then at the point at which he was really having breakout success before the— 
airing of that particular movie, suddenly all the news came out and people were talking about blacklisting that film. And, and then again, I had this question, obviously what he did was terrible, but how much of this is about you know, objection to this particular movie that has a revolutionary kind of a message and, you know, a pro very progressive message. That was an argument that was being made. You know, why didn't we care about it when he was starring in a movie two years ago with Google and Boo through Raw and we're supposed to care about it now? You know, and what is the statute of limitations on these things? And the work of art is not responsible. And the everybody else they in created didn't do it. Right. But although he, people were also concerned that there were rape scenes in the movie and that felt disrespectful to some survivors and he did produce and was a bigger part of that movie than just being a cast member. So it's, it's difficult. I'm just bringing these yeah. things up because I do think we've been wrestling with this, these issues now in the Me Too context for years without getting to the root of some of the limiting principles, as you say, which I think would make it easier to, to mitigate these situations. Well, and also because there's no way to Make up. There's no social understanding. Like, okay, you did something wrong. Right. Here's what does here's the like? here's, what does here's the penance. Look and like? then you're past it. And right. then you can. And then we can consume your 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 stuff yeah. again. Outside of a criminal justice context, because for you're whatever right. reason, the law didn't put him behind bars, and so maybe people would have been okay with it if he had served seven yeah. years or whatever, gotten out, and lived his life. But how do you repay your debt to the victims and to society outside of a criminal justice context? And is anything enough? And if nothing's enough, are we going to be in a place where nobody even tries to make amends? And is that the world that we want to live in? I don't think so. Uh, I wanted to play this clip of Megyn Kelly discussing the accusation of the 16-year-old. She feels about it similarly to how you felt about it. I thought this was an interesting response because I'm mostly seeing defense of Russell Brand on the right. Um, and this was, uh, this was kind of an exception. Let's watch. I don't I don't really care if it if it turns out that the rape charge or the sexual assault charges fall apart. You're 31 years old and you have sex allegedly over a three month period with a 16 year old. We're done. I'm unsubscribing. All right. And I am sick of conservatives online trying to defend that as though she had a role in it. She was a minor. Just because you can't be prosecuted for it doesn't mean it's right. The conservative men I know are lovely. They're ethical. They're honorable. It's not to say they've never fallen down in their lives, but in no world would they be taking advantage of a 16-year-old minor. I have a daughter who's four years away from that. You come anywhere near her as a 31-year-old man, and we are going to have a yeah. serious problem. And it's not yeah. going to be over whether you get demonetized on YouTube. Yes. I really hope my friends and the conservative side of the aisle would remember just because we're all over Me Too and it was an overreaction and it went too far and it got politicized doesn't mean that we have to knee-jerk defend every scumbag who gets no. accused of bad behavior. Yeah, I, I get where she's coming from. And I think that when you're a parent and you're spending a lot of time with young kids, you have a much clearer sense of their maturity level, not just what they look like, but how vulnerable they are because they're they're so dumb. They're just babies. And it, it, I, I can understand 100% where her passion is coming from. And also this kind of critique of the conservative right, which really articulates a value of having social conservatism and protecting kids and being anti-pedophiles. But it again and again, in moments like this, seems to for, put, put the legality of it aside, put what these social media apps should do to Russell Brand to the side. It, there's very little expression of, ooh, yikes, maybe you shouldn't, even if it's not against the law, maybe we shouldn't be having sex with 16-year-olds. And again and again, um, you see people who have branded themselves as defenders of children against pedophiles 
in very suspicious situations on the right. So there was a story recently that the Sound of uh, Sound of Freedom, that movie that did so well, that was an anti-child trafficking movie. Uh, hero Tim Ballard allegedly—this is just an allegation—but allegedly pressured women to take showers with him or share a bed, um, ostensibly to, few, to fool human traffickers to see how far she was willing to go. And then Paul Hutchinson, an executive producer of The Sound of Freedom, allegedly touched the naked breast of an apparently underage trafficking victim during a 2016 undercover operation. So again, you, you just keep seeing this pattern of the accusations being confessions. And so is there going to be any pushback from the right at the same time they defend people against overreach from social media companies against the underlying act of exploiting children? Um. Look, I, I agree with you that this is definitely—it's creepy behavior, and even if it's not legal, or even if it's not, not illegal, which is not illegal in the UK, UK, Europe has, um, has uh, different standards on these things that I admit would you know, make a lot of um, uh, us, us Americans very deeply uncomfortable. There is a little bit, though, of like, uh, like okay, what age are people actually adults, and what, like— I mean, conservatives, maybe, so maybe this is hypocrisy if any conservative is saying this fine, but, right, conservatives are saying that if you're under 16 or maybe under 18, you shouldn't be, you know, allowed to do, uh, trans to transition, to take puberty blockers, all that stuff. And there aren't many progressives fighting for, you know, their body autonomy and it's their right to do that, but it's not their right to have sex with an older man. I, I feel like there needs to be just like a universal age, f driving, alcohol, voting, marriage, sex, body autonomy. It kicks in at some point. We should decide that that's what it is, and, we're, and it's not going to make everybody happy. It's not going to cover every edge case in the world. But rather than have this sliding scale of rights all over the place that we fight over, well, we're not talking about rights here because what Russell Brand did in the UK wasn't illegal. But Megyn Kelly is expressing moral outrage, and this is this is a thing that has come up several times in life and on the show. I do think that sometimes these technical conversations we have about what the broad standards should be of a social media company or whatever, are substituted for an honest conversation about what we feel as a society is morally right. And I think that what Megyn Kelly was articulating is that she personally is not interested in engaging with Russell Brand as the mother of a 12-year-old because she feels like what he has done is, from her subjective personal point of view, morally abhorrent. And she is really a solitary voice on the right in even articulating that. And she said, like, she's the one who was me too at Fox News, very famously, and I think behaved very courageously in the face of that and standing up against it and getting not as much support as I think that she should have from people in her own political cohort. And she's willing to say that Me Too still went too far, even though she was a victim of it. She's willing to uh, uh, validate so many of the concerns about social media and the like. But at the same time, she's like, I can still say, as the mother of a teenager or a preteen, that this is not okay behavior. And I wish that people could, could land in that space and acknowledge that both things can be true. That you know, but what Kanye West said was anti-Semitic and wrong, and also that he shouldn't be stripped of his privileges to bank at a bank, um, that maybe Russell Brand shouldn't be demonetized. But hell yeah, it's gross for a 31-year-old to have sex with a 16-year-old. I should say, I don't—I think it was Gretchen Carlson, right, was the person who had the ser very serious Me Too I don't know about how, how serious, Rails. but she was definitely one of the kind of bombshell I know she was people. a bombshell. I, I don't quite remember what the— what that story was, if it was a serious thing. I think Gretchen Carlson is the one who, like, accused Roger Ailes of deeply serious Well, the whole point harassment. was that it was a systemic issue at Fox yeah, News. Yeah, I, and that yeah, all I think of it the, was... Like, many, many, many women at Fox News were 
experienced a hostile sexual harassment environment. Yeah. Um, well, this is a big issue, obviously. You know, Russell Brand is a significant figure in um, our kind of content creation space. So I, I think we will continue, you know, to talk about this and think through what the right response yeah. of. And I'd love to hear from Russell Brand what he thinks. Yeah. Uh, rehabilitation. Well, we've invited him like. to be on the show. We would love to yeah. actually talk to him about um, yeah. all of this. Because he has been very honest and, and made amends and apologies about things in his past. And so I, I am looking forward to seeing what he says going forward. More rising right after this. You don't know anything about the boxes. That's what Molly Michael, a former aide to Donald Trump, claimed he directed her to say with regard to the classified documents the FBI found in his possession. This is per the New York Times. That was first reported by ABC News. Michael also told investigators Trump wrote notes to himself about the documents, which she only realized after the fact that they were marked classified. CNN legal analyst Ellie Honing told Anderson Cooper this could present a blow to Trump. Let's listen. She's going to be a really difficult person for Donald Trump's defense team to cross-examine. And then let's think about the substance of what the reporting is saying Molly Michael will testify, which is that Donald Trump told her straight up, you are to lie to investigators. You are to tell them you know nothing about boxes or documents, which was untrue. That is right down the middle. That is textbook obstruction of justice. That is textbook witness tampering, potentially really devastating evidence here. Georgia former prosecutor Chris Timmons told CNN's Aaron Burnett, Michael's testimony could be the smoking gun. Let's watch. She makes a much stronger witness. And on top of that, you know, she's got just damning information. I mean, this is a, a smoking gun. And so I think what we're going to see here is when this case goes to trial, if it goes to trial, her testimony, particularly her direct and more importantly, her cross-examination is going to be the key to whether the former president is convicted. These are not the boxes you're looking for. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, look, there's nothing to say about this. Um, this is an unforced error on Trump's part to have kept the boxes after they just requested them back. You can absolutely say that this is not very consequential. You can say that all sorts of political figures have such documents in their possession. I would make the case that it is a bad thing that we routinely overclassify so many things and put people in this situation because there's this knee-jerk secrecy going on. Um, all that said, Trump's being treated differently here because he persisted past the point where, like any other normal political person with an R or a D next to their name, would have just given back the documents, and then there would have been no prosecution. If there was still a prosecution then, yeah, it would have been unfair, and, and we should have called it out. But it's just not—that's not the case. He brought this on himself. He, he caused incriminating uh, videos and statements and witnesses to exist. And again, it's not, I don't think it's a big deal. It's not the end of the world. It's just something we should not have to talk about. He shouldn't have to deal with. He's only dealing with, and there was nothing at stake. It did not, it did not, he did not stand up to the deep states successfully because of this. He did not fight for any conservative or independent or populist or MAGA principle. He didn't he just, steal the proof that aliens exist. Yeah, right, right. If they try to, if they try to drag those boxes with the little alien bodies and the little build a little spaceship, uh -huh. the photos of the spaceships away from him, and he said, "This is why I need this." Um, that would be that would be different. Um, now, 
I get he's tried to say that you know these were plans, uh, something in although that was not the document that is actually charged. I'm, I'm not quite sure on the details anymore, but there, at some point there was a the plans to attack Iran, uh, and yeah. he was being portrayed as wanting to have attacked Iran, and actually it was the generals advising that or putting together a theoretical plan to do it. So look, I, I understand why he would want to acquit himself in that way, but it seems very clear based on what he said that he knew he could not have those documents. This Undoubtedly, undoubtedly. And he could have declassified them when he was president. Yeah. He could have declassified them and then kept them. But he's on tape saying he knows he can no longer do that. Yeah. This would undoubtedly be the dumbest reason for Donald Trump to go down. But and it yet, is very dumb. And yet it is a legitimate yeah, it's a violation dunk, but... of the law and a situation that he put himself yeah. into. Obstruction of justice and all the rest of it. I mean, it's it. sort of in the same way that there's a no jaywalking sign there and you cross the, the street, but... You know, then he also recorded himself next to the jaywalking sign doing it and said, look at this. And also to I the know I extent that it's like an accident. It's not, it's that level of seriousness. Like if, if everyone, like a lot of other people made the same faux pas as him, Mike Pence, Joe Biden. Yeah. But he, even in the midst of all of that, continued to go above and beyond right. and behave in ways that created legitimate distinctions between his behavior and the behavior of the others, Hillary Clinton. And if he had just acted like a normal person and returned the boxes on the first, first, second, third, or fourth times they asked yeah. for them back and still tried to go after him over it, he could credibly make the case that they are making a, a, an example of him and treating Hillary Clinton and Joe Biden and Mike Pence and all the others very differently. But he fundamentally cannot. So now the Republican Party is in the situation where they have to deal with the fact that on the for the dumbest reason in the world, their likely Democratic uh, Republican nominee is going to go down. Yeah, and there's plenty of time to pick someone who would have just given the boxes back and not made this an issue. <laughs> there, there is time. There's many other candidates running. Um, you can choose any of them. You can, you have your options. But Republican primary voters are saying, no, we don't care. We want Trump. We think this is BS, or we don't care about it. Again, I don't. This is not. This is the least consequential by far of all the indictments he's facing. It's not a particularly significant is issue, so... but it's. I, I, mean, I mean, it I is what it is. What do you want? If, if I was in charge of picking, I this, I would I would look for a, a candidate who is not flawed in this way. But it's the Ameri it's the Republican electorate that's in charge, and they've said they don't care and they want him. I do wonder if someone like and maybe this is the reason they want him. I do wonder if someone like Nikki Haley is going to. I mean, she was willing to be she's critical. Not. Whatever of the, you're about to say, she's not. She was willing to be critical of the Republican Party during the debates in a way that I think, not just I think. Uh, poll testing and audience reaction evidence suggested made her look really good to folks. Um, it showed integrity. It's, I feel the same way about Bernie Sanders or others who are critical of the Democratic Party. It shows a lot, of, a lot of guts to do that. She called Republicans out for driving up the deficit. Amen to her. And I wonder if that energy might be brought to a moment like this, where she's like, I'm very unlikely to be picked for VP. Uh, so let me say the truth, that as dumb as this is, the fact that Donald Trump would be willing and able to get himself into the situation is disqualifying as president of the United States. It's almost worse. It almost reflects worse on him because it was so avoidable and dumb. And don't we just the want an adult in the room for Republican once? voters don't agree with that. They just don't agree with that. With that what? What she just said. That it's dumb it's and disqualifying dumb for President Biden to have done this kind of. A, sorry, uh, they, no, they think for, it's dumb for President, President Biden Trump to have done this own goal. They they don't care. They don't think that. Well, and I, they don't I, want to hear you criticize it. I don't. I don't that's know. That's what they're. That's the view they're expressing. I don't know. At a certain point, I, I, some Republicans were expressing frustration of being in a position where you had to defend uh, Trump over this one in particular, because there's just no defense to it. It's not. You know, a guest earlier seemed to still be under the belief that 
the allegations of voting fraud hadn't been formally uh, sufficiently pursued by the Trump DOJ. There are people out there that, for whatever reason, believe that the uh, one six related indictments are more about their entitlement to the presidency and democracy. There are people who feel like the uh, Stormy Daniels stuff is smutty and uh, personal and beyond the pale. But the boxes, it's like I, I gave you seven opportunities to just not break the law. And your jaywalking example, you see someone step one foot in the street and the cop goes, hey, I'm gonna have to arrest you if you keep going. The crosswalk's just, right there. Can you just turn can you around? Go to the crosswalk? And, you, and you do it again. Oh, no, but please, I don't wanna arrest crosswalk, you. Sir? Just go back to the curb. And on the fifth time, they just sashay across in the middle of this. Like, he's like, and then you were all, we're all, all the whole Republican Party is put in the position where they gotta defend, like, just the dumbest behavior on the planet. At a certain point, it is exhausting and it's unfair to have put the public in that position. I agree with that, but again, Republican primary voters have shown no indication, very little indication that it matters to them whatsoever, and they're the ones who will decide who the nominee will be. Well, I don't know that you can say that when we're just getting, that these investigations are all in their primal stages, and we're now only getting and more and more evidence that conclusive evidence that uh, uh, Donald Trump is guilty of this one. This is they're something not. that's a lot harder to duck. And they're so not, I, I think it's, not. I think I gotta say, I think it is sometimes irresponsible when we in the media, before any time has passed, start making proclamations about what the public will think about the media story that we're delivering. Because sometimes we create the perception. The liberals did this all through 2016. People started saying things like, no one will care that it came out that Trump did this, which seems to give the audience permission to not care. And what we have seen evidence of is one, the audience likes it, the public likes it, when people are truth tellers in the Republican Party. We saw that with Nikki Haley. And two, some Republicans in office have demonstrated exhaustion of having to defend Donald Trump on this particular issue because it's indefensible. So I'm interested to wait and see what the public thinks about this. Not that he's a bad guy or doesn't deserve to be president because of it, because, but because he has disadvantaged the party and is not looking out for the party and instead is putting his own self-interest before the good the of the whole. The public might feel very badly about this. And there's evidence, there's certainly evidence that the swing voter, moderate type person is moving away from Trump and, and that this does make a difference to them. I'm not, I'm not saying overall, it's just specifically with Republican primary voters, I have not seen evidence yet. I'm not saying they're right to not care. And I, I think, I wish the nominee would be someone else. I actively wish it would be someone else. But I've, I've seen no indication whatsoever that any of this stuff is breaking the Trump spell. Well, it just happens. <laughs> like, well, this news story just, just happened. happened. The, the, I mean, the documents thing has been going on for like a year now. Yeah, right. Well, it feels like him, it feels like ten him, years. Him I don't, actually what do you mean it just being happened? convicted of something, of the news reporting overwhelmingly that he is going to be convicted of this crime, and depending on what the penalties I mean, are for the crime, if he is disqualified on some level for whatever reason from literally running, I mean, this is imperiling the fate of the Republican Party as a whole. You cannot say that that's not going to have zero effect on people's perception of whether or not they should vote for a more stable candidate in a primary, especially when we're now getting polls that show. So any number of Republican candidates look like they can beat Biden in a head-to-head -head matchup. I just don't think this argument is resonating. I wish it was. I don't think it is. But as you as you point out, a lot of time left. So we will see if those poll numbers begin to move. And tomorrow we'll be back with more rising because this does it for us for today. We'll have a lot more to talk about the Bidens, Donald Trump, probably more updates on Russell Brand. You should stay tuned for that.
Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. For those of you who prefer to listen while you're on the move, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. See you later. Bye-bye.